Latin America in general is rife with reports of unidentified flying objects and close encounters with alien beings, often with outlandishly strange appearances, like hairy, razor-clawed dwarves, crimson-skinned cyclopses, or even black lobes. Brazil is no exception to this. There's also quite a few UFO reports from that country, in particular, in which the close encounter was harmful in some way, several involving physical injuries of some sort, and sometimes even death. One of these is reminiscent of Edgar Allan Poe's Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar, or H.P. Lovecraft's Collar Out of Space. But it happened. This is episode 16, and this is the mysterious death of Joao Prestes. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. First things first, a shout out to to the Suspiria podcast, who helped me out with uh, how to pronounce certain of these words in here, because Portuguese, I found, is a language that uh, a lot of stuff isn't pronounced like what it looks like. They helped me out with mostly the name of the guy, some folklore questions I had, like whether the Lobisimum is actually the same thing as the Lobazon. So, just so any any other researchers out there know, if you if you research any if you see any stuff from Brazil, any accounts of uh, different cryptids or UFOs or anything like that, the name of this guy you've come across many 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 times because it's an extremely common name since it's basically the equivalent of John. Uh, it's the name that is. Uh, J-O-A-O, so it's pronounced Joao, which is not exactly how I would have guessed it was pronounced, but there it is. So, thanks. I should mention that there's slightly different accounts of this story. All are more or less identical, the differences being in the small details. For example, the initial account of the incident, which was written by Philippe M. Carrion, and most accountings that followed, had it that the event occurred on March 5th, 1946 while later examination of the death certificate revealed that it was actually the day previous to that. The age of Joao is also disputed. Again, the initial account says he was 40, and the death certificate says he was 44. His exact name is another point of contention. Some say Joao Prestes, while others name Joao Prestes Filio. As Filio means son, it is likely that this was analogous to the English junior, as in, he had the same name as his father. 
The accounts that name him Filio tend to be non-Portuguese ones. These discrepancies and inconsistencies are likely due to the fact that the story was apparently little known even within Brazil until 1971, which is the year of Carrion's account, originally published in the French UFO journal Phenomenes Spatiales, published by the Aerial Phenomena Study Group, or GEPA, and that therefore the, the facts in the account were gathered 25 years after the events in question. So, people might misremember what happened. The town of Arasari, Guama, is today a fairly sizable one of 20,000. But at the time of this story, it was still a small farming town. It was still fairly isolated, and it's said that neither electricity, telephones, or even a traditional underground sewage system were present in the village. As said, it was March 4, 1946 when this story begins. Carnival season in Brazil. For those of us here in the States, Carnival is a Lenten celebration, roughly analogous to Mardi Gras. That day, 44-year-old Joao Prestes left his home near Arasariguama to go fishing in the Rio Tiete a few miles away, as was his habit during Carnival. He disliked the noise and drunkenness associated with the celebration. But his wife, Sylvia, was thinking of going to some of the celebrations in town. He told her that if she did so, to leave one of the windows slightly open so that he could get in the house when he returned. Joao was with a friend of his, Salvador de Santos, who was going to accompany him on his fishing trip. The two men returned to Arasariguama at about 7 o'clock that evening. When he returned, Joao stabled and fed his horse, put his catch in the kitchen, and prepared to take a bath. Then the horror began. He saw something outside the window and cast it open, upon which something resembling a fiery torch, in his words, had entered the room. He shielded his face as the torch approached, and then, feeling himself burning, Joao fell to the floor. Soon the light disappeared, and as his hands were now twisted and useless, he managed to open the door with his teeth and ran to the home of his sister Maria, arriving nearly an hour later, wrapped in a blanket. He was in a state of delirium, saying only the light over and over again. He collapsed in a bed. Police Chief Joao Malak Yas soon arrived, as did Arasi Gomid, who was a local tax inspector, but also had a bit of medical knowledge from his time in the army, and so doubled as the, as the nearest thing Arasari Guama had to a doctor at the time. Here accounts of Prestes' injuries differ. Gomid gave the most graphic depiction, and the one utilized in Carrion's initial account, and most later ones. He states that Prestes' skin was very red upon his arrival at Maria's house, and it was apparently continuing to burn still. Although apparently very badly burned, he noticed that his clothing and hair were uninjured. It eventually began to look as though his flesh had been boiled for several hours, and then literally to slough off his bones and chunks. The man was literally falling apart. The flesh had detached, especially from his jaw, chest, arms, and hands. His mouth was now merely exposed teeth, the lips having fallen away. Gomid claimed that although his physical condition was a horror, Prestes seemed to feel no pain whatsoever during the process of practically dissolving before the eyes of the witnesses. They hastily bundled the poor man on a wagon and began to drive to the nearest hospital, which was in the neighboring town of Santana de Parnaíba, 
He died on the way. According to a footnote in the original Flying Saucer Review, account of the death of Joao Prestes, the man's bones were sought by the French government for testing. This may seem random, but in my opinion it likely has something to do with the fact that Carrion's initial account had appeared in a French journal. But as I stated, that's only one account, and likely for reasons of its dramatic and gory nature, the most popular one in most media. But Pablo Villarubam also, and Claudio Suanaga, questioning other witnesses in 1997, got a different story. Luis Prestes, who was son of Joao's brother Roquet, still remembered how he had been forbidden from going to Maria's home since he was only a child and his uncle's appearance might shock him. He did catch a partial glimpse of Joao as he was moved to the cart for the drive to the next town and recalled that the blanket wrapped around him was blackened, presumably from burns. Most tellingly, Luis said that his father had always maintained that despite what was reported in the media, the disillusion of the body that the Gomid had mentioned never actually happened. Instead, he always said only that Joao was very badly burnt. Still terrible wounds, to be sure, but not nearly so, as ex so extreme as Gomid had claimed. His flesh was blackened, and the other accounts were correct in saying that hair and clothing were unburnt, and that the injuries were mainly confined to the upper part of his body. He stated furthermore that there were no apparent burned areas in Joao's home, and no signs of the so-called torch that had inflicted the injuries. Malso and Swanaga also questioned Virgilio Francisco Alves, an elderly man and a cousin of Joao Prestes, who was present at the home and was a direct witness to the condition of the body. He mentioned that there was a thunderstorm at the time, which is another detail inconsistent with Gomid's account. He had stated that the weather was clear and dry. His testimony, Alves's that is, backed up that given by Luis. When he arrived at Maria's home, he said, he was in bed and having problems using his tongue. His skin, which was fair, was toasted and reddish, as if he'd been roasted. His hands and face had the worst burns. The hands were twisted. The hair didn't burn, nor did his feet nor clothing. He was only burned from the waist up. His feet were torn up from running barefoot on sharp rocks. Questioned directly about the rumor of Joao's dissolving body, he answered, No, no. His skin was burned, but it wasn't falling off. I think that the Bowie Tata was to blame, since it attacked him once before. The Bowie Tata, or fire snake, is a word in the Tupi-Guarani language of the indigenous Brazilian peoples. It was first recorded in the 1500s by Father José de Anchieta, who wrote, There are also other ghosts, especially on the beaches, who live most of the time near the seas and rivers, called Batata, meaning fire, or all made out made of fire. Nothing but a shining beam is seen running there. It rushes on the Indians and kills them like the Korapira. This fiery snake, as it was called, was believed to be a protector of the forest, as was the aforementioned Korapira. Though in some regions it has seen the ghost of an evildoer who burns things out of sheer spite. Other versions of the tale have it that the Boitata is a huge fire-breathing bull rather than a snake. As to this previous attack, Alves stated, When Joao was a cattle driver, he was still young and lived with his father in Arasariguama. One day at sundown, as he led the donkeys over a hill, he saw a fire that fell from the sky, 
a fireball. He was near a chapel, and he could feel the fireball passing over him, almost knocking him down. Joao would tell me at that spot you could sometimes see 10 or 12 balls emerging from the sky. Some of them were red, others moon-collared. Sometimes five or six would fall to the ground and explode. People would call them the Boitata lights. Virgilio said that he himself had seen these mysterious lights, often emerging from where there was an old gold mine at Morovello and landing near another hill. We also called those fireballs Maes de Oro. There was the golden lizard, an elongated tongue of flame that moved in a straight line, slowly, without making a sound. The Maes de Oro, or Mother of Gold, is the local name for the ghost or spook lights that are extremely well known to the Fortean researcher. This particular one, sometimes personified as a woman, is usually a yellow-orange or sometimes bluish collar, and is said to be able to lead people to treasure. The relationship between such ghost lights and hidden treasures is an extremely common link made in folklore the world over. The Maest Oro moves around and should be followed. It is said that the first creek or other waterway that it passes over is where one should hunt for gold. Another area resident, Hermes de Fonseca, also confirmed Luis's and Virgilio's statements indicating that Joao had merely been burned and not melted. Since it's now three against one, sorry Mr. Gomeet, but burned it is. Which would certainly make the declaration on the death certificate that death had occurred at 10 p.m. due to heart failure resulting from extensive burns less of a laughing stock than it was initially treated as. The statements of Virgilio Alves, however, provide some indication that the area around Arasari Guama and the old gold mine was an odd one since long before Schwal met his fate. Besides the mysterious light seen by Virgilio and a young Joao, which were also called Asombrasos, or ghosts according to Luis Prestas, his father Roque had also encountered a Lobisamem, or Lobazon, which is basically a werewolf, in the area. One of Luis's uncles had thrown a rock at it and hit its foot, and the next day they saw a neighbor with his hand bandaged. And that idea of wounding a werewolf and then seeing someone displaying the same wounds is another extremely common folkloric trope. There were, there were the rumors that others had encountered werewolves in the area as well. UFO sightings are made quite often in the region as well. Sao Roque, Ibade, Osasco, and Santana do Parnaíba have all made reports. Nelson Oliveira, who works at the cemetery where Joao Prestes is buried, claimed to have seen a UFO hovering over the cemetery and eventually flying off to, towards the southeast, towards Sao Paulo. And on the same day that Joao was stricken, Alensar Martin Gonsalves saw a fireball over the same cemetery. When Malso and Swanaga were receive, received the additional information regarding the case in 1997, they were in Sao Roque, investigating reports of the livestock-killing creature known as the Chupacabra, which had visited the farm of a Mr. Edie. In March 1996, they talked to Emilio Carlos Oliveira, who worked on the farm. Edie and Oliveira had discovered three exsanguinated sheep, which had small incisions on their neck, which is usually found on victims of the Puerto Rican Chupacabra. They also discovered that an employee at another nearby farm, Eduardo Roberto de Moraes, 
had found a number of large three-toed footprints in October of 1996, and again in March of 1997. A Mr. Douglas, who lived nearby, had also found 35 dead chickens on his farm, as well as large three-toed tracks like those that Marais had found. A boy named Wagner Aparecido da Silva saw some sort of bipedal white creature on Douglas's property as well. Coincidentally, the word lobazon, or werewolf, seems to be quite often used in Brazilian sources to refer to the chupacabra. Were the, tra- were the tracks discovered by Demarais and Douglas left by the same creatures encountered by the Prestices and others near Arasari Guama? So what did befall Joao Prestes? Most common of the theories is that he was killed by a UFO, that whether purposefully or merely as an unfortunate side effect of, of its presence varies by the researcher. It has been noted that the burns, apparently bypassing his clothing and hair, seemed more consistent with radiation burns than a more conventional source. Some claim that he was struck by lightning or ball lightning, which in my opinion would be likely, as ball lightning in particular is known at times to detonate in a rather spectacular fashion. But then again, the fact that the room in which Joao was struck was undamaged seems to preclude this. The tales of the Boitada, in particular, seem indicative of some sort of lightning-related phenomena. As alluded to in the introduction, Brazilian UFO encounters are often quite harmful to the human witnesses. In 1996, investigator Bob Pratt wrote a book called UFO Danger Zone, which chronicled many of these harmful encounters. Some of these are recounted here to support the notion that while the fate of Joel Prestes was an especially grisly one, it's not necessarily an isolated one. Granite fatalities don't usually result from these encounters. In 1977, the state of Maranhão was visited quite often by something called Ofogo, the fire, by witnesses. A man named Ignacio Rodriguez, who saw it in the city of Pinheiro, described Ofogo as bluish, but when it first appeared, it was a small red ball. It was beautiful, but it was so bright I couldn't look at it very much. A man named Joao Barros, from the town of Salbento to the southeast of Pinheiro, said he was burnt by the fire. I saw the light in a river when I was fishing with two friends. We were in a boat, and at about one in the morning the fire appeared. It lit up a big area. The light passed behind me, going east. It was red in the center and greenish blue on the outside. I felt a lot of heat from it, and for three days afterward, I felt like pepper was burning my back. The other two men didn't have any burn, any burns. Another man in Salbeno was also burnt. Like Joao Prestes's, the burns seemed not to affect his clothing. Even a week later, his skin was peeling off as if from a severe sunburn. Another encounter took place in February of 1981. A man named Francisco de Conceição was fishing on the beach just east of Pesem in the state of Ciara. Suddenly I felt a strange beam of light on my back, Conceição told Pratt. I looked up and saw a violet-colored object with a red light, and I felt very cold, the way I feel when I open an icebox. 
I was very afraid, and I ran, about, ran back across the beach and hid, on, hid under some coconut trees. The object chased me and stopped over the trees. Then it shined a light down on me, trying to get me. He claimed that for three hours, he tried in vain to avoid the UFO, Bowie Tata, or whatever it was. It didn't leave until daybreak. Kansei Sal's skin was red as if sunburnt, and after two days, skin began to peel off. He claimed that he also perspired a lot for the next month or so. Given some of the above accounts, one wonders if perhaps Schwal Prestis's skin was peeling in a similar manner to the unnamed Salbento man, or to Kansei Sal's, and perhaps that was exaggerated and spun into references to his flesh literally falling off. Other tales of luminous phenomena from elsewhere in the world echo certain aspects of the Prestis case. First is a tale from Venezuela of a ghost light, which seemed to cause injuries that were somewhat analogous. Scientific American, December 18, 1886 To the editor of the Scientific American, The following brief account of a recent strange meteorological occurrence may be of interest to your readers as an addition to the list of electrical eccentricities. During the, night, during the night of the 24th of October last, which was rainy and tempestuous, a family of nine persons, sleeping in a hut a few leagues from Maracaibo, were awakened by a loud humming noise and a vivid dazzling light, which brilliantly illuminated the interior of the house. The occupants, completely terror-stricken and believing, as they relate, that the end of the world had come, threw themselves on their knees and commenced to pray. But their devotions were almost immediately interrupted by violent vomitings, and extensive swellings commenced to appear in the upper part of their bodies, this being particularly noticeable about the face and lips. It is to be noted that the brilliant light was not accompanied by a sensation of heat, though there was a smoky appearance and a peculiar smell. The next morning the swellings had subsided, leaving upon the face and body large black areas. No special pain was felt until the ninth day, when the skin peeled off and these blotches were transformed into virulent raw sores. The hair of the head fell off upon the side which happened to be underneath when the phenomena occurred, the same side of the body being, in all nine cases, the more seriously injured. The remarkable part of this occurrence is that the house was uninjured, all doors and windows being closed at the time. No trace of lightning could afterward be observed in any part of the building, and all the sufferers unite in saying there was no detonation, but only the loud humming already mentioned. Another curious attendant circumstance is that the trees around the house showed no sign of injury until the ninth day, when they suddenly withered almost simultaneously with the development of the sores upon the bodies of the occupants of the house. This is perhaps a mere coincidence, but it is remarkable that the same susceptibility to electrical effects, with the same lapse of time, should be observed in both animal and vegetable organisms. I have visited the sufferers, who are now in one of the hospitals of the city, and although their appearance is truly horrible, yet it is hoped that in no case will the injuries prove fatal. Warner Cowgill, U.S. Consulate, Maracaibo, Venezuela, 
November 7, 1886. From Pascagoula, Mississippi, which in itself, coincidentally, or perhaps not, played host to a UFO encounter in 1973, that being the double abduction of Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker, comes a tale of a light which seemed to radiate a similar level of heat to many of the Brazilian cases, not just that of Joao Prestes. Pascagoula Star, August 22, 1874. On the night of 13th inst, a singular and awe-inspiring phenomenon was observed at the village upon the seashore, corroborated by several reliable witnesses. The evening had been very close and sultry, and between 10 and 11 o'clock, a violent squall and thunderstorm, accompanied with heavy rain and hail, came down from the north. This did not last more than half an hour, the wind lulling and shifting to the west, becoming in fitful gusts, when the luminous electric cloud, for such it seems to have been, passed through the western extremity of the village. Coming from the northwest, which would be from just over the marsh and bays of the Pascagoula rivers, just above their mouths, it moved southeastwardly along the sound, towards Horn Island Pass, the extreme left flank, so to express it, sweeping over Mrs. Willis's, the White House, and buildings adjacent. It contained intense heat. Mrs. Willis had just put her head out the front window when she was stifled by the burning hot gust from the west and felt as if her hair had been scorched from her head. She instantly thought the house is on fire and ran back to observe the kitchen. She thinks the heat was sufficient to have set the house on fire had it continued ten minutes. It felt as if she put her face near a red-hot furnace. Mr. Trudell, host of the White House, and several of his boarders felt the heat and saw a little illuminating cloud. Mr. T. thought, from the light and heat, that the hotel was on fire, and upon that instant came near to sounding the alarm. The heat, he imagined, had blistered his face and his hands, and he felt to see if his beard had gone. As the heat blast passed, he noticed the light which illuminated the buildings and surrounding objects. A Mr. Ladnier, who was asleep on the front gallery of the building adjoining the White House, whither he had taken refuge from the rain, was awakened by the intense heat on his face, and clearly observed the cloud of light, which was moving slowly along and seemed to be about a half mile in length, on a line between him and Horn Island, and thirty feet deep. It illuminated all objects over which it passed, and seemed itself to be moving about three or four yards above the inky black water below it and all around it was dark, nothing being distinguishable except that light. He noticed it pass over a vessel at anchor, about half a mile from the shore, making the ship's spars and rigging become distinctly visible. He was much alarmed, and remarked to his brother, who was with him, that the whole world was on fire. Several other people also saw and felt the effects of the phenomena. Some thought that the comet had struck us, and others thought Judgment Day had come. It soon passed, and all was again dark and still. But the most interesting, to my mind, is the account of a strange squall which occurred in Bass Harbor, Maine, in 1855. Ellsworth Herald, February 25, 1855. The following statement, dated Bass Harbor, Mount Desert, February 16th, is made to the fountain in the authority of Mr. John S. Stodge. A thundercloud passed over this village 
on Sunday evening last, which for terrific appearance surpassed anything ever before known here. The wind during the day had been from the northeast, accompanied with snow, with a temperature of from 15 to 20 degrees above zero. At 6 p.m. had increased to a heavy gale, and at 7 p.m. ceased to blow, and flashes of vivid lightning commenced. In a few minutes more, thunder was heard in the northwest, and at 8.30 p.m., the scene was grand and awful beyond description. The lightning was of a purple collar, and sometimes appeared like balls of fire, coming through windows and doors and down chimneys, while the houses trembled and shook to their very foundations. Mrs. E. Holden was near a window, winding up a clock. A ball of fire came in through the window and struck her hand, which benumbed her hand and arm. She then, with all in the house, retreated into the entry. Another flash succeeded, and in the room from which they had retired came a volume of fire, whirling around and producing a cracking noise. A similar appearance of fire was seen, and cracking noises were heard in a large number of houses. Some who heard the noise say it sounded like broken glass. Captain Maurice Rich had his light extinguished, and his wife was injured. He got his wife onto a bed and found a match. At that instant, another flash came and ignited the match and threw him several feet backwards. John L. Martin received such a shock that he could not speak for a long time. A great many other persons were slightly injured. Some were struck in the feet, some in the eye, while others were electrized, some powerfully and some slightly. But what was very singular, not a person was killed or seriously injured, nor a building damaged, but a cluster of trees within a few rods of the two dwelling houses was not thus fortunate. The electric fluid came down among them, taking them out by the roots, with stones and earth, and throwing all in every direction. Some were left hanging by their roots, from the tops of the adjacent standing trees, roots up, tops down. The lightning... After entering the earth to a depth of several feet, and for a space some five to ten feet in diameter, diverged in four different directions. One course which it took led through the open land, making a chasm to the depth of several feet, and continued its march unobstructed by the solid frozen ground or any other substance, to the distance of 370 feet, lifting, overturning, and throwing out chunks of frozen earth, some of which were 10 or 11 feet long by 4 feet wide, and hurling at a distance rocks, stones, and roots. The power here displayed was truly awful, and had it fallen on a building, it would have thrown it with its inmates into 10,000 fragments. It really seemed that God's mercy is manifested in sparing our lives amidst such danger and destruction. And while we thus enjoy his mercies, oh that we might be duly affected with gratitude of heart. I understand that in Southwest Harbor, in Northeast Harbor, in this island, Several vessels had their masts rent to pieces. One had some planks torn from her, and one man was knocked down, but not killed. I feel this one is especially interesting, as the lightning is of a purple collar, as was the light in Conseil Sal's account, and the mentions of numbed-limbed ones struck, as well as difficulty speaking, which had also been noted in the account of Joao Presta's. So what actually occurred that night in March 1946? We might never know for certain, but the possibilities are interesting. And that's the end of this episode.
A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77, lowercase f, lowercase d, all one word, at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off.